Hi, my name's Alex Kelly, co-founder of Bright Flag, and this is In-House Outliers, a podcast where I interview those who've taken unconventional paths and challenged conventional notions of how in-house legal should operate. I'm delighted to be joined today on the podcast by May Lee Ortiz. May is Managing Counsel for Labour and Employment at Toyota Motor North America and is one of the most fascinating guests I've had the pleasure of interviewing on the podcast. May, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks. I'm excited to chat today. May, let's start at the beginning. Where did you grow up? Yeah, well, you know, even though I was born in California, a month after my parents arrived in the United States, I'd say I grew up in Kaufman, Texas. It's a small town. At the time, there were only 5,000 people, and we were the only Asian American family in the town. So it gives you an idea of how small it was. And how would you describe yourself as a kid, mate? Oh my gosh, it's totally awkward. Um, <laughs> I think because we were so unique, probably a little bit of a misfit, not intentionally so, like, like just not really finding a place to belong. At the same time, I think that forced me to really throw myself into school and school activities and academics. So gosh, for the lawyers out there, they probably hate to hear it. But it was also probably a bit of a gunner, right? Like I want to be on all the academic teams and all the academic competitions, the spelling bee, all that. So both a misfit and a gunner. And as you alluded to, you were a talented student. What led you to studying then at Texas A&M? Gosh, I wish it was, you know, a better story than other than the fact that I followed a lot of my friends going to A&M. Now, I did visit UT, University of Texas, which is also the other kind of big public university in Texas. There's a rivalry actually between the two schools. I visited both schools and coming from a small town, A&M felt more comfortable. It has a small town feel versus going to the University of Texas. It felt a little bit too big for me. So I guess following my friends and then the community feel of a You referenced the fact you had that kind of academic competitiveness maybe when you were in high school. When did you decide to pursue a career in law? Gosh, my parents being very stereotypical, probably immigrant parents, right? They gave me two choices. They said doctor or lawyer, because to them, right, there's the only choices that led to financial security, right? And after probably a first semester of terrible grades in biology and sciences, I was like, you know what, people deserve a doctor that is at least good at science, right? So then I said, okay, well, I guess I'm going to go with lawyer because those are the other choice I had. So I think that's, you know, certainly what I did to choose pre-law, but it was a good fit. I mean, you know, being the child of immigrant parents, you know, all your life, you translate English, you know, you go to the doctor's office with your parents and you translate what the doctor is asking. So I think it was a natural fit. So I I think it worked out. It's fascinating, May. And it's funny because it is one of those professions that there tends to have been the kind of kernel of a seed of this being a potential future path at a much earlier age than other roles people find themselves working in in the corporate world. And then What were your biggest learnings from that first role as an associate after law school? You know, I think the experience might be a little bit different than most, because I think a lot of times in-house counsel, they start in big law first, right? They have the kind of big law firm experience. And I started with a really small law firm. I mean, so small, I was the only associate. So there are two partners 
as the only associate. And in that environment, I think the first lesson is that it's okay to make mistakes. I distinctly remember the main partner that I worked for. I mean, that first week, you know, you're scared, you don't know what you're doing. And he's like, okay, there's a hearing. Here's the file, go do it. And I was just so terrified. And he was like, you know, there's very few things that aren't fixable. And I wouldn't send this, like, if I didn't think you could do it. So I think that was such an important lesson to just know that it's okay to make mistakes and also to have a little bit of courage, right? The profession can certainly eat you up. And I thought that was a great start. It's so interesting you say that. I was talking to another recent guest about the benefits of starting your career in a smaller practice where you maybe get more responsibility more quickly. And as you highlighted understand that most mistakes can be fixed, but putting you in that hot seat in an earlier stage. And I, I personally trained in maybe a larger firm, but had the the luck to work for a partner in a small team where he almost had that attitude where he was kind of threw me in at the deep end at a pretty, pretty early age. And I think that's one of the challenges of kind of big law, I suppose, uh, career development is there's so many guardrails for people at that early stage as an associate in those firms and, and your learning can be so much quicker in, a, in, in that the sort of environment you were in. Yeah, I think that's right. Because I mean, when I went to a big firm, I didn't know this. I didn't know what big law meant. But there were some partners that I worked for that had never gone to trial, right? I mean, the caliber of the cases they get, I mean, high stakes, a lot of clients settled, you know. But at a small firm, gosh, I mean, I had, you know, a handful of trials and had one myself. No, it was like a little court for a client, you know, small client matter, but it gave me a lot of confidence. And I think going into from small law, if I use that term to big law, you need that confidence because I think big law emphasizes a lot on be perfect, no mistakes, you know, clients are paying a lot of money, you cannot make a mistake that can be really crippling on the development of a young lawyer. What did prompt you to make that transition from working in that smaller environment to Littler Mandelson to focus on employment law? Yeah, well, the employment law piece I had always wanted to do. I just didn't have an opportunity right out of law school. I did a, a moot court experience in law school. So employment, that bug kind of bit me early. And as far as moving, you know, rightly or wrongly, our profession is very brand heavy. Right. And in some ways, if you don't work in big law, people presume that you're not a good lawyer. They presume that you can't cut it. And I think I sort of had a chip on my shoulder about that. I felt like I had to prove that I was a good lawyer by going to a big firm. So that's why I, I was looking for a big firm. But the the Littler Mendelssohn piece, just gosh, an amazing firm, you know, so many great professionals there. And importantly, I, I love their brand. I love that they are known as employment law experts in the world and diversity is really important to them. And, and that was what I was looking for. And did you have any mentors at that stage in your career that played an important role in, in your own development? Yeah, gosh. I mean, I, I would definitely say the first partner I worked for at a small firm was a huge mentor. I mean, talk about the most selfless mentor. When I went to him and said, you know, I, I worked at hit for him for five years and I, I kind of felt like I hit this plateau that I wasn't growing anymore. And I shared with him, I was like, I think I want to do something else. And against his own interests, right? I was the only associate. He was like, if I'm not growing you, you know, 
look elsewhere. So, so I think that was huge for me because I felt such loyalty, right? Set such this debt to him for taking a chance on me. So definitely for him, for sure. And that's his name is Bill Wolf. And then I think at Littler, a great mentor that I still keep in contact today, his name is Jeremy Hopp. And he was a senior associate that sort of took me under his wing at Littler. And then you know, we made shareholder. He still advised me. I think what was important about his role is that he was so candid, right? When I was up for shareholder, he was very clear about, you know, the relationships I had to make and the people I had to meet. So I think that's so important. It's funny. It is that um, ability for somebody to have great empathy, but equally be incredibly direct and candid and maybe yes. tell you some things you don't want to hear sometimes or areas for improvement or focus. It's certainly in my own career, they're the people that have maybe had the biggest impact on me. Definitely. When you're looking for mentors, you definitely want a cheerleader, right? And someone to encourage you, but you grow most when you have someone who's willing to tell you the stuff, like you said, that you don't want to necessarily hear, but you need to hear. And then what led to your decision to move in-house at Toyota? Oh, goodness. The year I left was the year I was up for shareholder. And I really have to explain this background. So with that background, so there's a lot of pressure to build a lot and to develop business. I was one of the few associates that had my own book of business. So I really wasn't concerned about that. But another important part of that backdrop was the fact that I was coming back from maternity leave. I had my daughter. She was about three months. And I was really working from like 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. I'd see her from 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. She does not go to bed early to this day. And, you know, working from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. And that was my weekday. And then on weekends, I'd bill, you know, at least six hours a day. And I share that to say it's not the firm that said I had to do that. It was kind of my type anus and my ambition, you know, all of that. So that's the backdrop. But what ultimately led me to apply was just a bad day. You know, sometimes I think I tell, you know, I talk to young lawyers, I said, sometimes you are just one bad day away from making a change, you know, just having a bad day. So I had a bad day. I went on LinkedIn. I saw that Toyota was looking and I applied. That's fascinating. And some aspects of what you said there certainly resonate with me as maybe my competitive nature as well. When I was working in the law firm, like top of the league in terms of hours build and, and yes. willingly working weekends through nights, yes. like loving getting to work on the biggest transactions that were going on. But all of that takes a toll and maybe hitting a point where it, it took a step back and said, was it what I wanted to be doing for the next 20, 30 years of my life? And it's fascinating that there was just one one moment when something popped up for you that caught your attention. And then when you did make that move in-house, what were the biggest differences to private practice that you had to adjust to? Most people would say billing, you know, not having to bill is a big thing. And I totally accept that. I think when you move in-house, it's not just the freedom of billing, but suddenly you're at a loss of how to prove your value, right? In law firm practice, you can just look, I've been working all these hours. And then when you're in-house, it's really not about how much you work. It's, is your work important? Does it have an impact on the business? How can you articulate the value of a lawsuit prevented, right? So I think that's a huge difference because in some ways you're kind of like, wow, I feel very unproductive today. What did I do? What do I have to show for it, right? Maybe I don't have a piece of work product. So I think that's big. And then from a personal standpoint, getting rid of the law firm culture, 
you know, whether that's toxic or not, just that perfectionism, the workaholism, trying to shed that. And then relationships. I think when I first went in-house and everybody was so nice, I I was a skeptic. I was like, what's their angle, right? (laughs) Why is everyone so nice to me? You know, it's like, oh, people are just nice. And I I hate to say that because it paints big law as this terrible thing, but it's not, it's, I don't know. I mean, you know what it means, you know, but, but yeah, that was a really big thing. Like, gosh, everyone's so nice. What do they want from me? Nothing. They're just really nice people. There's so much there. And again, so much I can relate <laughs> to nodding and smiling along here. And and again, I like I had a great culture. The team I worked in the law firm, but there is a different dynamic, I think, working sometimes in the corporate world or in different environments. Obviously, I left to start Pride Flag. <laughs> an entirely different scale to working in in Toyota. One of the things that always fascinates me the most, and you've kind of touched on this in terms of the value of the the in-house role and going from being a revenue generator to being somebody who's enabling the business and how you kind of quantify that. How do you get the balance right between ensuring you're proactively mitigating risk through training programs and kind of proactive engagement with the business while also dealing with the kind of fire hose of immediate matters that are coming your way from the business that need immediate attention, because that to me always seems like one of the hardest parts of the job. Yeah, gosh, that's such a good question. And I don't know if there's a right balance or rather probably the lawyerly answers. It depends, right? Your company, the culture, the resources you have. For me and, you know, the company I work for now, I would say it's more of a cycle, right? So we have fires we put out, but what's really integral to our culture, one of our major tenants is called Kaizen, which is a Japanese word for continuous improvement. So whenever we have a fire or we have an issue, certainly we work quickly to resolve it, but there's always a moment of reflection. There is, what did we learn? What can we do better for next time? And it comes from probably our manufacturing and make sure our vehicles and our products. So it's always like iterative. That applies to law as well. So whenever we have an issue, we always have reflect and we're like, what are our countermeasures? And that's built in. I probably don't want to fib and say that's always methodical. It could very much be like, put the fire out. What can we do to fix it? And it might take a long time to do the fix, but at least it's built in the process, in the culture. Well, that's obviously a world-renowned business philosophy and concept and replicated the world over by other other companies. And and it's, I'm sure, hugely reassuring to be working in the legal team where that is just ingrained in the culture, that point of reflection. What lessons can we learn? What can we do better the next time? How do we proactively mitigate this risk? That's fascinating because very often legal is, is kind of simply being called upon to kind of enable the business to to close whatever transaction, hire whatever employee, whatever the issue might be as quickly as possible and then move on to the next thing. So maybe something unique to Toyota's culture that it is more challenging for their legal departments, do you think, to, to kind oh of organically? Yes, you put the nail on the head because I think, you know, as outside counsel at a firm, you're used to putting out the fires, you're used to settling cases, you're used to sort of problem solve immediate, but as outside counsel, you don't see what happens afterwards, right? And then though, now that I'm in-house, the harder part is what are the countermeasures and helping stakeholders come up with a plan and helping them execute. And sometimes we actually take on the projects ourselves, which I never did as an outside lawyer. 
I suspect it may be related to this, to what you've just said, but what are some of the mistakes you see in-house counsel make when they've just moved from private practice? Yeah, I think the first is when you don't realize you're part of the solution and part of the team to execute on whatever you suggest. I think you have a tendency to suggest things that may be very impractical. Oh, well, we just need to do X, Y, Z. Well, XYZ has needs a lot of people or needs a lot of money or needs a lot of time and we don't have that time. So I think the first mistake is not understanding how your advice impacts the business. So I think that's the first mistake. Second is when you're used to being sort of this magic eight ball or like a vending machine of legal advice you forget to include stakeholders, right? Who else needs to be a part of this solution? Is it payroll? Is it compliance? Is it sales? You know, I think that's a big mistake. Who needs to be a part of this decision? And I think that comes from, you know, when you're a law firm, you just want to be as efficient as possible, you know, call the shot and move on. That doesn't work very well in-house. And then the third, not getting to know the business or not building those relationships. What you don't realize is that when you're at a firm and you are a paid service or a paid, I don't know, hired gun or whatever word you want to use, you certainly you want to build that relationship with whoever's giving you that business. And, you know, like clients are paying you for your advice. You're going to give the advice and most likely they're going to listen, right? Because they need it, that they paid for it. But when you're in-house, you're just one of many voices. You're just one of many stakeholders. So how can you influence the decision? How can you be persuasive? Is it the fact that you're a subject matter expert alone? That can only get you so far. So building those relationships, people trusting that you have their best interests in mind. I I think that's huge. Maybe turning our, our attention back to outside counsel, now that you're on the other side of the fence, what are your biggest pet peeves when working with outside counsel? Yeah, gosh, I I hate to say it, but I'd say probably a lack of responsiveness. And it's not that, you know, since I've been outside counsel, I don't think I'm unreasonable, but I'd like to hear at least within 24 hours that you got my message. I don't need an answer. I, I don't need an answer in 24 hours. I need a, I got it, or someone's working on it, your message received or something like that. So I think responsiveness is big. What else? Like deadlines? like not anticipating deadlines. So, and, you know, it it gets better with experience, but if you have, you know, there's a deadline coming up, you know, try to give me some notice. I can build it in my schedule so I can build time to review. So I think that's really big. It's really tough when, oh, I really need, you know, we got to file this brief tomorrow and you're giving it to me today. It doesn't give me a lot of time to review and really no time to provide substantive feedback, right? What choice do I have? It's due tomorrow. I guess we'll just file it. And then third, lack of practicality. Like in other words, again, you're dispensing advice, but you're not really understanding how my business works. So I have to almost translate your legalese sport to be usable with my business clients. So I'd say those are three top patterns. 100%. And and it maybe was unfair of me to kind of Frame the question in the negative rather than like, what a great relationship with your looks like, which is (laughs) communication. You're not expecting them to work through the night, but you want them to to be clear with you on on timelines and and give you advance notice of those things. And and as you say, that kind of practical, clear advice, a brief answer to the question that you've got for them. And 
Turning our attention then to diversity and inclusion, what do you think in-house counsel can be doing to help drive diversity and inclusion within their organization, firstly, but also within the wider legal community? Yeah, gosh, I'm deeply, deeply passionate about this space. In fact, I just wrote an article about kind of 10 ways, but I, I think ultimately it comes down to really taking action. I think people have the best of intentions. I think people, you know, certainly agree that having diversity and inclusion, the profession's a good thing, but what are they doing? And it's tough to prioritize it. So for me, it is, can you mentor someone or sponsor someone in our profession? And if you can't, can you review their resume or answer their questions before they go to an interview? You know, sort of like on a whole spectrum of small and large things you can do. You know, I guess my first thing is you need to do something. You got to do more than talk. But it, but you can also fit it within your life. You know, when you work with outside counsel, you know, ask the question, you know, what are your diversity goals this year? It might throw your outside counsel off a little bit, right? But you can also preface, hey, I'd really love to have a conversation about diversity and what the role that your firm is playing or the role that you're playing, you know, like outside counsel lawyer, are you mentoring someone? Are you sponsoring someone? I guess it's all about using your influence for the greater good to the extent that you can and you're able. Now, I'm sure people will talk about, you know, make sure that you have diverse lawyers on your team or making sure that lawyers get equal opportunity to get, you know, maybe origination credit, things like that. I think you can do that, but those might be harder, right? Because you're going up against institutions. So for me, it's like start small, start wherever you can, but do something and then you can slowly build up. It's such great advice. And I was fortunate to be be at a table at Summit by the Sea at Legal Operations Conference last year, where this was a discussion topic. And was discussing this and a, a senior in-house leader, a diverse leader in a large US organization was saying something very similar to what you've said. But one of one of the really practical pieces of advice she had was if she knows of a great external diverse lawyer, she was their biggest advocate. She's demanding that they be on, on her matters. She's recommending them to other team members within her organization. And it's those kind of practical things that you can do that can start to make an impact. Definitely. I agree. And then if you yourself had to attribute your success to one skill or to one trait, is there anything may in particular you'd pick out? I think it would be really seeing people, you know, having that empathy for getting to know people and understanding what their motivations are and what drives them. I think that has helped me immensely in my career. Being real and authentic with people, I think it begets the same back, which has just helped me immensely. For kind of maybe our younger listeners, lawyers at an earlier stage in their career, do you have any advice on how you went about kind of cultivating that that skill or that trait that you have? Yeah, I think first and foremost, it came from my experience of being a misfit, right? Like not belonging, Therefore, having to make great effort to get to know people, you know, asking their questions, what they like, what they don't like. So I think that was a part of it. That's where it came from. But for young lawyers who want to cultivate that, I think it's really taking the time to get to know people. And what I mean by that is, you know, you say hi to 
people and you look them in the eye and you ask them how they're doing and you truly wait for their response and then you respond to their response. You know, it's not like this automated thing that we're so used to in our culture. And I know that sounds really trite, like, May, that can't possibly be the secret to your success. But it really has. It really has been. I mean, and, and I say that to everyone. Like, I know she's the cleaning staff on the fifth floor of W1 at Toyota, and her name is Olga, and she cleans her bathrooms. And I know her, and I know that she's from Venezuela, and I know that she has children that she sends money back to. You know, I probably know less about her CEO because he's her CEO, and I don't see him in the hallways all the time. But what I'm saying is, like, people are people. And when you get to know and see people, regardless of what role they are or what purpose they can serve in your life, I think it just opens a lot of doors. Nice. Such great advice. That empathy and authenticity and curiosity can, yes. can lead to so much in ways you can't foresee when you're having that, that individual conversation yes. and benefit that individual, potentially benefit, obviously, yourself. And I think, obviously, in the context of your role enabling the business as an in-house lawyer, truly listening to the problem you're trying to solve for the business and understanding where the per- who the person is, having a trusting relationship with them as a foundation, and then truly listening to how it is you can help them, I think, is oh, that's a, so a recipe good. for yeah. success. Yeah, yeah, you explained it way better because I don't think I connected to like how talking to people can lead to that. But that's right. Like you practice some sort of these just everyday conversations and then that skill you develop and it makes you a better lawyer because you are curious and you care about what people say and you're trying to connect the dots for them. So that was so good. Shifting gears a little bit, May, we've kind of touched on this slightly in kind of your expectations of outside counsel, but how important to you is developing strong project management skills as an in-house lawyer? Gosh, I mean, I think that is probably one of the, you know, after relationship building, I think it might be one of the the most important skills. One that when you don't really know that you need until you go in-house. But yeah, I, and I'll say, I, I can't say that I'm really the best at it, but so important, right? Like getting the scope. What is the scope? What is not in scope, right? Because you don't want that scope creep. And, you know, who are the stakeholders? And and who's the decision maker? And who's the audience? Getting all that right before you even start executing is huge. And that's hard because as lawyers, I think we jump into problem solving immediately, right? We jump into execution before the planning. So definitely so important. And I imagine, again, it's an example, May, in Toyota somewhere, an organization where it's just table stakes, as an expectation of any member of the team that you have strong project management skills and are kind of approaching things from a first principles perspective on these things? Yes, for sure. For sure. And I think, um, yeah, and and honestly, when you first come in in in-house, you don't realize that's a skill you have, but you have to learn rather quickly. And then what role does legal technology and legal operations play in enabling your team to be successful? Gosh, I mean, I don't even know how to encapsulate how important it is, whether it is, you know, simple things as like document retention, right, making sure we have version control, also collaboration, I'd like to see more of it, but I'd really like to see legal get comfortable with data analytics, right, to to help us prioritize our projects, and the fires that come in. But I think there's still huge opportunity. I don't know, Alex, that you would agree with me, but I think lawyers are reticent to change. They don't love 
I guess, change and technology. They wanted to kind of do things that they've been taught and they've been trained. And I really think as we get more comfortable, we as lawyers get more comfortable with legal tech, we will just make more impact on the business than ever, right? Being able to be more timely, more efficient with our time. If we could ever predict what type of cases we might get based on the past, I, I feel like there's a whole world that we haven't quite explored or that other industries have explored and lawyers just haven't gotten there yet. But I think we will. I'm hopeful. One of the biggest things that I'm seeing, May, is the kind of the generation of, of legal leaders that are coming through like yourselves in-house now who have that attitude. And I think there is a multitude of ways in which legal technology can make legal service delivery more effective, how you can more proactively identify potential legal risks. But I think it has to start with that internal leadership motivation and that kind of buy into we are going to try this, we are going to invest in this, we are going to put resources behind it to try and solve these problems in a better way or a different way. And I think that's what's ultimately the catalyst for moving the whole industry forward, in my experience, has been kind of forward thinking legal leaders, particularly on the corporate legal department side, who have the most to benefit, willing to, to innovate. Yeah, I'm excited about our profession or where it's headed, really. I know you've given a lot back as well, May. You've, you've been active with the Dallas Association of Young Lawyers for years. Can you share some of the programs that you've been involved with there and how they've benefited your own personal development as well? Yeah, I think big picture, that is probably the primary experience other than, you know, developing subject matter expertise in employment, because I am an employment lawyer for the company I work for. But setting that aside, I think participating and being in a leadership role in the Young Lawyers Association was really the best training I had at going in-house. And the reason why is because as a leader in bar associations, I had to influence young lawyers who have billable hour pressures to give up their free time for a greater good, right, toward a mission. So I had to hone my leadership skills, my communication skills, really sell what's in it for them. So that's how it developed me as a leader. And I think that's why I've been so successful in-house. So that's like the big picture answer. But kind of like smaller programs, I'd say, I really enjoyed, we have a leadership class program. So it's a formal leadership program where young lawyers get to hear from leaders in the community and, you know, do some self-awareness, you know, type assessments and things like that and work in their communication skills. So I think that was the best sort of program that directly benefited my personal development. And I think another program I really liked is Dinner and Dialogue. And what that program is, where you would go to dinner with people of different backgrounds, right? Work on the empathy, listen to people, where they're coming from, why they believe what they believe. And I think that really developed me as well, right? Because as you know, as our world is ever more divisive, listening and understanding and empathy is so key to get past those barriers. So I think that was integral too. That's incredibly well said and I couldn't agree with you more. And something I'm also aware of is you're an incredible writer and I'm a big fan of your blog. And 
a member of our team, Kevin Cohn, our chief customer officer. He writes a blog. I know it takes not not just that kind of incredible talent of being a good writer, but also a lot of discipline to create the time when you're so busy to do it. What prompted you to start sharing your experiences about all things in-house for Above the Law? Gosh, I mean, I have to give credit where it's due, and it's to one of my mentors and sponsors. I don't know if you know her, but her name is Lisa Lang, and she is GC of now Ohio Northern University, I think. But she was Kentucky State before, I think, if I have the schools right. But um, And interestingly, I've never met her in real life. We connected over LinkedIn during 2020 and just kind of sharing thoughts and ideas and and developing a relationship all virtually. And when she was asked by Above the Law to write for them, she says, oh, what about my friend May? And like the rest is history. I mean, if it weren't for her sponsorship and kind of bringing me in, I don't think that I, I would have had the opportunity. But as far as what inspires me, I think it's that there's a lack of resources, I think, for in-house counsel, if I might. I, I don't know. I mean, I certainly didn't know what it was like to be in-house counsel until I came into it. So I just sort of wanted to provide some transparency, right? The grass is not always greener, what skills you need. Because I think when you are one bad day away of leaving big law, you instantly think, oh, well, I'll just go in-house. But I think you need to go into it with eyes wide open. And I'm hoping to provide some of that transparency. I think transparency is a, a great word to describe it. It is completely honest, candid advice. It just jumped off the page to me, some of your experiences of burnout, sharing them very candidly, that some of which I could relate to from my time in, in my law firm days. It just blew me away. And I would highly recommend it to, to any of our listeners as a great resource if you had to pick one thing then about being in-house counsel, that's your favorite. What is that? Ooh, I think it would be feeling like I'm having a meaningful impact. I mean, looking back at who I am, I just think I am motivated by feeling like I'm a small part of something bigger than myself. At my childhood, that's, you know, joining a lot of different organizations and leadership roles and things like that. And I think in-house provides that meaning for me. I, I need to have meaningful work and knowing that I'm contributing to that. So that would be my favorite thing, getting closer to the, those decisions versus maybe getting a lawsuit after the fact and having to clean up. That's so true. And quoting from your blog, I think you said, you love what you do, but you are more than what you do. What does that mean to you in practice in your life, May? Yeah, I think... First and foremost, I'd like to share that thought. I think it's important because especially in our profession, we perhaps define our worth or value by how much we produce. And that's usually work, right? You can't help it. You meet someone, oh, what do you do? And then suddenly you put someone in this social hierarchy based on what they do, which I think is ridiculous because at the end of the day, I know that, you know, we have to work or at least I do to put food on the table, so to speak. At the same time, it's just a part of me, right? Like I'm a mom of three. I'm probably a naggy wife. You know, I'm a bossy big sister. I'm a very devoted daughter. I like to mentor. I like to think I'm a philanthropist. So there's all these roles, right? I'm more than a lawyer. Now, don't get me wrong. That's what I mean. I love being a lawyer. I love what I do, but I'm more than that. And so I think it's important to get that out there that it, that we should be whole people and not just our professions. But in real life, what does that mean? It's a reminder for me to 
unplug, right? Like set boundaries and make sure that I'm volunteering at my child's school and I put them to bed and I read them a story instead of trying to get one more email out the door, you know, and that's hard. It's tough. Again, I can relate to a lot of that. There was definitely a stage in my late twenties when a lot of my identity was just wrapped up in in being a lawyer. And then in my early thirties, it was being a founder of Bright Flag and that being all consuming as it, to some extent it yes. necessarily has to be as you're starting a business. But uh, I'm very grateful that um, maybe got a, a broader perspective and a, a different hierarchy and set of priorities. And as you say, uh, a person entirely outside of work, which is far more important. And, and out of curiosity, what do you enjoy doing yourself in your spare time then? Oh my gosh, I wish it was more interesting, but I like I, I like the boring stuff, the boring but meaningful stuff, meaning making up inside jokes with my kids, right? Watching TV with my husband after the kids are in bed. I like listening to my baby. Now she's one, so I don't have a baby anymore, but she snores. So I like to listen to her sleep like like a creepy person, you know. <laughs> so those are probably my favorite things. But I write and I do volunteer in the community and other things, too. But my favorite things is just to be really relish those moments that we all know are so fleeting. It's my favorite. Yeah, yeah, certainly for myself. It's the time with the family and the kids at this stage when they're I have a two and a half year old and a three and a yes. half year old. Our two and a half year old is an incredibly light sleeper. I'd be too scared to kind of creep in to see if she was snoring for fear of waking her up yeah. during the wrath of my wife. So, <laughs> But I, I completely agree with that, May. And, and it's been an absolute pleasure having you on as a guest. We spend a lot longer here delving into all things in-house and, and much broader topics as well. So thank you so, so much for being so generous with your time. Thank you. My pleasure. So much fun. I'm Alex Kelly, host of the In-House Outliers podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Brightflag, an AI-powered legal operations platform where corporate legal departments gain visibility into operations, maximize productivity, and engage with outside counsel strategically. If you like this episode, then you can find more information in our show notes. If you want to hear more, then you can also find more episodes at brightflag.com forward slash legal hyphen operations hyphen podcast. Thanks again for listening to the In-House Outliers podcast. We'll see you again next time.